At any hour of any day, we could pull up the news headlines circulating throughout the world and find numerous places that are undergoing tremendous suffering. We, we've witnessed that. We've seen that even this last Friday in, in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, we could put a mic and, and circulate the mic around the room and we would find news headlines in your own lives that illustrate this. You've got stuff going on. You've got hard times. You've got adversity. You've got suffering that you're contending with now. And I know that whenever we approach a new year, we approach the new year with, with um, our glasses are half full. We have a positivity about it. We have maybe some good expectations, high expectations for what the new year has for us. And undoubtedly, many of us will experience blessing this next year. But we also live in a fallen world. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that at some point in 2017, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? The next three Sundays, we're going to be looking at the book of Job, and we're going to see what it has to offer us as we face suffering in this world. Now today, from today's text that Anna read, we're going to see that this text offers us actually four different vantage points on suffering. Four different vantage points on suffering. Here are the four, and we're going to look at these one by one. First, how Satan sees suffering. Second, how God sees suffering. How Job sees suffering. And how you can see suffering. Four different vantage points on suffering. Let's dive into it first, how Satan sees suffering. At the beginning of the story, we're given a glimpse into just how much God has blessed Job. He has 7,000 sheep. <laughs> Try to picture that in your head. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. How much land does this guy have? 3,000 camels. He has 1,000 individual oxen. 500 female donkeys. Now, in that time, at that day and age, one's wealth was measured in what one had. Herds, flocks. He has incredibly vast herds. So Job is, by that standard, in that day, incredibly wealthy. Additionally, he's been blessed with 10 children. Seven boys, three girls. He's got a number of servants. We're also told that Job is a very righteous man. He's a man of integrity. Look at what God says about him. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. There's no one on earth like him. So Job is a man who's got it all. He's got, he's got financial wealth. He's got a great family. He's a man that God is very proud of. What more could you ask for? Now, all of that sets the stage for a conversation that ensues between God and Satan. And in this conversation, the curtain is pulled back, and the readers of the book are allowed to peer into the inner workings of suffering. And in this conversation, behind the curtain, we're given a glimpse into how Satan sees suffering. We see the premise, first of all, that Satan has in his approach to suffering. His premise is this. Starting in verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? 
You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now strike out your hand and strike everything, stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Do you see what Satan is saying here? Satan thinks that you praise God only when there are benefits attached to it. This is his premise. This is going to establish how he sees suffering. He thinks that you're going to love and follow God as long as there are benefits attached to it. He does not think that you love God for God himself. He does not think for a minute that you're going to follow God just because God is worthy of following. He is saying, no, 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 no. These people of Alliance Bible Church, they don't love God for God's sake. Their love for God is ultimately self-centered. There is a self-interest that the people of this church have for God. They will not stick with God if all the benefits and blessings that he has given them are stripped away. So Satan views suffering. Satan views suffering as the means of exposing Christians as frauds. This is his view of suffering. Satan looks at suffering as the means of exposing Christians as frauds. You don't love God. You love what he's done for you. You love the blessings that he's filled your life with. Take all of that away, Satan says, and I bet their praises of God will turn to curses. He's on to something here. Satan is not called the most cunning and crafty creature for no reason. He knows that in every situation, the most natural question for us to ask is, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? So he is barking up that tree. He is going to poke at that. He sees suffering as the means by which Christians are exposed as frauds because he doesn't believe for a minute that we're going to follow and love God for God's sake. The only reason we'd love God, the only reason we'd follow him is because of all the blessings that he gives us. Take all that away. Satan thinks your praises will turn to curses. That's how Satan sees suffering. Second, how God sees suffering the profundity of the book of Job is the fact that we see the conversation that ensued in the heavenly realms and Job doesn't. That's going to be important as, during these three Sundays as we, as we look at this. Job has no clue that this conversation has taken place. He was minding his own business. He's going about his day, day-to-day -day routines, regular stuff, and suddenly he's hit with catastrophic tragedy. He's completely unaware of this conversation. But if he could see the conversation that took place between God and Satan, he would see that God sees suffering, first of all, as a controllable enemy. It's a controllable enemy. Now keep in mind, to inflict Job with suffering is Satan's idea. He came up with the idea, he came up with the plans, and he executes them. He's the brains behind Job's, Job's suffering. This is why it's an enemy. This is not part of God's thinking. This is Satan's thinking all the way. But here's what's amazing about this. Though suffering is an enemy, God controls its every move. Take a look at these two verses, Job 1.12 and 
The Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, very well, then he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Satan is not free to inflict Job with suffering without first getting a permission slip from God. He's not allowed to move an inch into Job's life until God has sanctioned it. He's not free to make Job suffer whenever he wants and to whatever extent he wants. God controls all of that. Think about this way. What if it didn't work this way? What if it didn't work this way? What if, what if instead you had a Satan who could do whatever he wanted to you whenever he wants? What would that be like? What would that be like? Praise God, that's not the way it works in this world. In this world, we still have a God who controls Satan's moves. Notice in those two texts that it's not only um, when Satan is allowed to inflict Job with suffering, but it's also the extent to which he's able to do that. So the first time around, uh, Satan comes to him with his ideas. God says, okay, but on the man himself, don't lay a finger. The extent is limited. The second time around, he says, okay, you may now lay a finger on Job, but you must spare his life. God controls suffering. Satan is not free to inflict suffering whenever and however he would like. God sees it as a controllable enemy. Second, he sees it as an opportunity. He sees it as an opportunity. Verse 8 again, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. But God knows what Satan's up to. God understands Satan's premise. Satan does not think that anybody is going to follow and love God for God himself. The only reason people follow and love God are for the benefits attached to it. God knows that that's what Satan's premise is. God sets out to embarrass him, to embarrass Satan. And he puts out his servant Job as a, as a model, as an example of someone who will not fit into Satan's premise. Satan, I give you Job. Man of integrity. There's nobody like him. He's not going to bail on me if you torture him. You know what? God is right. Job doesn't bail on God when he loses everything. God sees suffering as an opportunity to demonstrate the spiritual integrity of his people. It's worth noting that after, after chapter 2, verse 7, Satan is never mentioned or heard or seen again. For a book that starts out with him having such an active role that raises lots of questions, a number have, of scholars have speculated that could it be Job's response to suffering sends Satan away? Because the way in which Job responds to suffering undermines Satan's premise and schemes. Could it be that the way Job responded ends up sending Satan away humiliated, embarrassed? 
God sees suffering as an opportunity to demonstrate the spiritual integrity of his people and undermine everything Satan wants to accomplish. Now, those of you who have suffered greatly are probably processing this. Um, and you may say, well, I understand that. But why does God have to demonstrate my spiritual integrity this way? Couldn't God demonstrate the spiritual integrity of his people some other way? The answer is no. This is the only way to demonstrate one's spiritual integrity. Why is that? Well, it's only in suffering. What you really think and feel about God is revealed. It's only in suffering where what you really think and feel about God is revealed. Take away all the perks in life. Take away everything God has blessed you with. Car to drive, house to live in, loved ones, friends, career, financial stability, health. Take it all away. All you have left is God. Is that enough? It's only in suffering where what you think and feel about God is revealed. Why? <laughs> because in order to know what you really think and feel about God, every possible ulterior motive for loving him needs to be stripped away. That's suffering. That's suffering. When there's nowhere else when there's nowhere else for you to look at in your life to say, I love God, but God himself, that's when what you really believe and think uh, and feel about God is revealed. Suffering is the only place for that. So God views suffering as an opportunity to demonstrate the spiritual integrity of his people. He sees it as a controllable enemy and as an opportunity to demonstrate the spiritual integrity of his people. Now, how does Job see suffering? So we're seeing different vantage points, four different vantage points on suffering. Satan sees it as um, a way to expose Christians as frauds. He does not believe you will follow and love God for God himself. The only reason people would stay faithful to God is because of the blessings that he fills their lives with. God sees suffering as a controllable enemy. Satan is not allowed to move an inch into Job's life unless God sanctions it. He also sees it as an opportunity to demonstrate the spiritual integrity of his people, thereby undermining Satan's premise and schemes. How does Job see suffering? Job, first of all, sees suffering as something to mourn. Look at verses 20 to 22 in chapter 1. At this, Job got up and tore his robes and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The Bible does not teach keep a stiff upper lip in your suffering. The Bible does not teach just pull yourself up by the bootstraps when you're suffering. It doesn't teach stoicism. Look at the way Job responds. He tears his robe, he shaves his head, he falls to the ground and cries out to God. Now, how many of us, if we saw one of our friends or loved ones doing that in response to suffering, would think there's something horribly wrong with them? 
that's not what God thinks about Job when he responds to suffering this way. Job is responding to suffering in a holy way. Suffering is something to mourn. It's something to grieve. It's something to cry over. It's my prayer that the global church and ABC be a safe place for people to mourn, for people to grieve, that your shoulder be a safe shoulder for people to cry on. There should be tears. That's a holy way to respond to suffering. So he sees suffering as something to mourn. Second, he sees suffering as something through which to worship God. Something to mourn and grieve, there should be tears, but it's also something through which to worship God. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, may the name of the Lord be praised. Through his tears, (laughs) through his grief, through the shaving of his head and the tearing of his clothes, he is saying, praise be to God. Simultaneously. Now, what has the Lord given him? He gave him everything. Money, possessions, children, family, servants. Why is Job able to praise God when he loses those things? Why is Job still able to praise God when he's lost all of that? This is something we've got to be able to see in Job's life. It's going to help us. The reason Job is able to praise God through his tears when he's lost everything is that he has rooted his joy in something he has not lost. And that's God himself. If your joy in life is ultimately tied to what you've been given, when that's taken away, you will plunge yourself into darkness, despair, bitterness, and anger. But if your joy is ultimately tied to God, when that moment comes, when you lose what you've been given, your joy at a deep level is still retained. Because your joy is rooted in something you have not yet lost, and that's God himself. The only way Job is able to worship God through the tears and the grief is that he's rooted his joy in something he has not lost amidst his suffering, and that's God himself. Job sees suffering as something to mourn. He sees it as something through which to worship God. Third, he sees suffering as something to accept from God and nobody else. From God and nobody else. Uh, Chapter 2 Verses 9 and 10, his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Ladies, don't encourage your husband this way. You want the 21st century version of what she's saying to him? 21st century version of what she's saying to him? Hey, give God the middle finger and go kill yourself. Look at the way he replies. You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Um, He lost 10 of his kids in a storm. 
Storm came, blew the house down, they were all killed. He doesn't blame Mother Nature. He lost his stuff and his servants to the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans. But you don't hear him blame them for it. He doesn't even blame Satan in all of this. When he's looking at his suffering, his assessment of it is this. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? If you accept suffering from somebody other than God, if you think your ultimate origin of your suffering is from someone other than God, and God is tangential to your suffering, what exactly is that God like? Where was he? If Job was to attribute this whole thing to Satan, where would God be exactly in Job's mind? And what is that God like? Where was he? Was he absent? Asleep, caught off guard, fooled, overpowered? If God is completely tangential to Job's suffering, what kind of God is that? In the middle of the mess, this is what can be such an incredible source of hope and strength. And it's this. The Bible insists God never says Oops. God never says oops. Nancy Guthrie's story illustrates this, and it's worth reading at length. After her daughter was born, Nancy knew something was wrong. Though she named the baby Hope, there wasn't much to be hopeful about. Born with club feet, extreme lethargy, and an inability to suck, among other problems, Hope was officially diagnosed with Zellweger syndrome. This rare metabolic disorder is characterized by an absence of peroxisomes, which are cell structures that rid the body of toxic substances. There is no treatment or cure. Most babies with the disease live less than six months. At first, I thought it was my fault says Nancy, that I didn't pray enough for a healthy baby and I was now paying for it. She considered a recent Bible study she had done on the book of Job and at that time she wondered if she could do what Job did. She recalled the passage where God said, my servant Job will be faithful to me no matter what. I remember being so challenged by that, she says. I couldn't imagine God ever having that confidence in me. As Nancy looked at hope, she thought, here's my chance to respond the worst thing I can imagine in a way that is pleasing to God. It wasn't easy. Nancy had to make that decision over and over again during the next few months. Her grieving didn't get easier. Hope wasn't healed. The pain didn't lessen. But each day, Nancy tried to respond faithfully despite her loneliness and grief. When people offered to drop off meals, she and David invited them to stay. When people expressed pity at their circumstances, she asked them to celebrate their daughter's life. Whereas before we talked to our neighbors about our lawns, we never had meaningless conversations anymore. We were talking about life and death and Jesus in a way we never had before. In preparing for her own loss, Nancy began to help others. On her 199th day of life, Hope took her last breath. Both parents must be carriers of the recessive gene for Zellweger syndrome to occur. 
the Guthries decided David would have a vasectomy to prevent another pregnancy. Only one in 2,000 vasectomies fail, so the couple felt secure. But one year after Hope died, Nancy was pregnant again. Prenatal testing revealed their third child would also have Zellweger syndrome. Time magazine interviewed Nancy and David for an article in which the writer compared their plight to that of Job in the Old Testament. The article quotes an entry from Nancy's journal. Like Job, we often cannot see the hidden purposes of God, she wrote. But we can determine to be faithful and keep walking toward him in the darkness. Named after the angel, Gabriel was born on July 16th, 2001, the same day the Guthrie story appeared in time. They knew what to expect. Their son's first day would be his best. Gabriel died 183 days later. Nancy says that answering how or why begins with another question. What? What do we believe about God? She writes, Do I trust the character of God enough to believe he's in control and whatever he allows in my life will be for my ultimate good, not that whatever he allows in my life is good. Can I trust knowing him will be good enough to make whatever it costs me to know him worth it? That is a powerful question. Can I trust knowing him will be good enough to make whatever it costs me to know him worth it? Her story is remarkable. Can I trust God never says oops? Suffering is something to be accepted from nobody but God. Fourth and finally, how you can see suffering. Centuries after Job, suffering assaulted another man in the form of a three-hour-long torture by suffocation and blood loss. In eternity past, Jesus lived in a loving, perfect intimacy with his Father. And on the cross, he was losing that. When we look at the cross of Christ, we often get hung up on the physical torture Jesus experienced and we, we say thank you Jesus for doing that for me but that was only a small part of his suffering there was a relational and a spiritual element to his suffering and that he was losing the love of his life as his father turned his back on him and abandoned him and in that moment that climactic moment of suffering, Jesus screams out a question every one of us does. We're in the midst of suffering. My God, my God, why? And when Jesus bellows that question at the height of his suffering, what was the response that came from heaven? What was the answer to Jesus' question? There wasn't one. There was no response from his father in that moment, just deafening silence. 
you might be there now. You're going through something. You're crying out to God, why? And you're getting no response. Where do you go from here? You're crying out to God, why? You're getting no response. So what do you do? In that moment on the cross, what did Jesus do? After getting no response to his why question, Jesus uses his last bit of energy and breath to pray a prayer of trust and faith. He says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. That's remarkable. He is suffering unjustly. Job was relatively innocent. Jesus is absolutely innocent. He is suffering unjustly. He is crying out to God, why? He's getting no response from the Father who had turned his back on him. And yet, Jesus uses his last bit of energy and breath to pray a prayer of trust and faith in the Father who had abandoned him. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, why does Jesus do that? Why does Jesus use his last bit of breath and last bit of energy to pray a prayer of trust in the God who had abandoned him? Why does he do it that way? There are numerous reasons, no doubt, but one of them has to be because of his intense love for you. Because if Jesus had not used his last bit of breath and energy to pray this prayer of trust in the Father who had abandoned him, we would be damned to hell. So you're in the middle of your suffering. You're crying out to God, why? Getting no response. In that moment, when you look at the cross, you can be assured of one thing. Though your suffering is a mystery, though you seem to be getting nothing from God but silence, the cross of Christ conveys one powerful truth to you. You are more loved, valued, and cherished than you ever dared dream. That is the air you have to breathe when you walk through this next season of suffering. Though it may feel like God has turned his back on you, there is one thing you can be assured of. His love for you is bigger than you can possibly imagine. invite those who are going to be serving communion to come forward at this time. The Lord's table is a great place to deal with suffering. Let me say that again. The Lord's table is a great place to deal with suffering. The Lord's table is a great place to prepare for suffering. You might not be going through tough stuff right now. 2017 will have something for you. At some point in 2017, you're going to suffer. Don't wait for it to happen before you start thinking through this and preparing for it. Prepare for it now. The cross conveys to us that while our suffering may be a mystery, there's one thing that is not a mystery, and that's the love Jesus has for you.